podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Wagon Wheel with your host, Jared Kimball. Don't always remember to say that. I suppose you know who it is anyway, but it's probably better if I say my name at least one point in this podcast. Thanks again to all the people for coming on to Spotify Green Room to have this chat. Also, thanks to sponsors, Manscaped. Remember, you can get a 20% discount using the code REDINCA, all one word, manscaped.com. That's shaving your balls, making your balls smell better. The boulder odorant, my um, producer Muku, when he first used it, said he'd never smelt better in his life. Now, that might be something to do with his personal hygiene rather than how good the ball deodorant was. But there you go. There's a lot of great products there, but obviously the most important one is the one that shaves your balls, unless you don't have balls, and then it's to shave someone else's balls. <laughs> Thank you so much also to Bodyline T-shirts. I've got the Curtly Ambrose one on today. And, of course, to everyone on Buy Me A Coffee and Patreon. Now, if you are a Patreon member, I think it's first class and above. It's club cricketer, first class, test cricketer, etc. You get the gag that you can go on. I think it's first class and above. You get access to my Substack, and you also get access to asking questions to start with on this here podcast, of which the Patreon people are about to do right now. Christopher says, should the ICC step in and try and make calendars more structured with less overlaps in series and tournaments? Uh, well, Christopher, the, the easy answer to that is, I see you put a lot of information there about different leagues and everything, but the ICC is not in charge of any of them. How can the ICC step in? They, the ICC is run by the boards, and the, and the boards specifically do not want the ICC involved with any of those sorts of shenanigans. Um, but no, I don't. I think outside of the OPL, I don't think any other major T20 tournament should have a window. I just don't think they're big enough at the moment. Um and the IPL, to be fair, Denver asked for a window. Um, they obviously picked very strategically um, and have put pressure on everyone else just by being bigger. I think they should have been given a window actually early on. I don't really understand the idea of not giving them a window. If you have a look at the ICC Future Tours program, they have one now. But the ICC has no say over any of this. This is just a thing that's happened. Um, Steve says, have you ever interacted with Ange Postelikoglu? I hope I pronounced that right. Um, I should have. Uh, Greek's one of the few languages as I ever grew up speaking. Well, not grew up speaking, but learned for like a year. I actually once like locked, I found a lock on my way into school one day and I locked the room uh, for Greek so we couldn't get in to learn it. So, you know, I didn't really learn it, but technically I studied Greek. Or any other Australian football soccer people are into cricket. No, the only one, um, I think Mark Bosnich follows me on Twitter. And we might have DM'd each other or chatted on, on um, publicly a couple of times. I know he's a big cricket fan. Yeah, but, but you're right. There's quite a few um, uh, um, Australian football players who are massively into cricket. Of course, the best one is the Italian player, isn't it? I'm going to get this wrong. Is it Christian Vieri? I hope that's right. Who um, is famous in the rest of the world for being really good at football for Italy. Um, and is famous in Australia because he grew up with an Alan Border poster on his room, uh, in his room wall. So... Uh, there's a fun fact for you, Steve, uh, if you didn't already know it. Um, Avanesh says, what do you expect as a trend during the IPL auctions? Are fast bowls or rounders, uh, are fast bowlers or rounders going to be treated as gold dust? Fast bowlers? No, I wouldn't have thought they'd be treated like gold dust. I think seam bowling or rounders is always, you know, it's a hard thing for India to get, but it's a hard thing really for the whole world to make. So as a general rule, you would expect there to be those to go a little bit higher. Leg spin has always got a part of it. I mean, anything with an all-round basis. So even, you know, that, there's a reason why, like a lot of people don't really understand the whole Chris Morris thing, but there's a reason why Chris Morris goes because he can do two specific roles. If you can find a player who can do two specific roles over two, over the two different innings, um, you always expect them to go for more. Uh, I'll be interested to see how much some of the younger Indian talent go for. Because if you look at what Delhi did in picking all that young and younger Indian talent, now they may still be in a good position going forward, but because of the way the mega auction works, you kind of want players between 22 and 20 and 26 rather than players between 19 and, and 23, even if they're a little bit better, right? So 18 and 22, sorry, got my ages wrong there. But but yeah, I'll be really interested to see how that goes. Uh, so it says, advertising money aside, what's stopping the ICC 
um, an individual cricket board to allow women to play full five days matches. Uh, well, advertising money isn't a problem at all. Women's sport, I don't think men understand this, but women's sport is gets a lot of advertisers. In fact, it gets a lot of advertisers that men's sport doesn't get. And there's a reason for that. It's a whole different audience, right? It's um, The 100 was partially designed like that way by accident to give the women and the men equal billing. I don't think they really uh, ever planned on it and then it sort of came about, right? But um, it was a huge boom for the ECB when it came to marketing and advertising, right? Because people like, you know, brands like to put women athletes up on their things. Um, and especially if they had the chance of growing them. In fact, I've talked to a few brands over recent times um, who, who they think most of their money will be spent on women's sport and women's cricket specifically, because you get more bang for your buck. Um, so no, uh, I, no, I, I don't think advertising is a problem there at all. The, the biggest problem with women's sport is really uh, um, as it overall um, is that you don't get as many people going to the games, and that's because there isn't a um, a history of that with women's sport. So the ratings are still really good. The advertisers still really like it, like it but it does look silly on, on TV sometimes when you have smaller crowds compared to other um, sports, although in cricket we, you know, we have a lot of test matches with small crowds, so we shouldn't be as worried about that. Uh, but there's no, nothing stopping any board um, from doing that, other than the fact that five days just cost more, and they probably just don't want to do it for that. Ian Cobain has done really well in the Big Bash, and I hear that he has similarly impressive numbers in the T20 Blast. Is he a late bloomer, or has he been gnawed by the English establishment, similar to Benny Howe? Uh, look, I have to go through his numbers. I'm, I would say that he's one of those players who maybe doesn't nat- naturally, um, isn't naturally seen as a franchise player. A lot of the franchise players now, especially over the last couple of years, while he's been getting good, um, have tended to be players who are better in Asia or better against spin, or whatever that version is. Uh, and I'm not sure that they necessarily look, uh, teams have looked at him for that. As far as England go, I mean, they can't get Phil Salt on the side, right? You know, they're, still, they're, they're good enough that they don't have to play Alex Hales if they don't want to. There's, England's just got a plethora of um, T20 hitters uh, that we're going to be seeing for a long time. So, uh, I, I, you know, there's no, it wouldn't surprise me if he, if he got a game at one stage as a backup or, um, you know, wait, due to COVID on a tour where they're, they're trying out new players or something. Um, but I don't think it's a similar situation at Benny Howe. And Benny Howe, who has decided now at the BPL, is going to become a batter um, who bowls a bit after absolutely terrorising batters himself for years. So good luck to him. Ian says, could we see a three-test series in women's cricket anytime soon? The standalone was excellent and the multi-format Ashes is certainly a good starting point, but women seem to want to play more Red Bull cricket. I mean, they do. Shika Pandey obviously came on um, my podcast and talked about that a while ago. Women's IPL is another thing that a lot of, well, anyone with a brain thinks is a good idea. Sarah Ganguly, I think he's released comments today saying when more women play cricket, no, enough women play cricket. Let's do this, right? There, there is a t- the time and the place for for that. It's it, it just it's a nonsensical argument. A by, by having a professional league that's big, you're going to get more women to play. You're going to get more young girls who don't give up cricket to go off and get jobs. Um, and B, um, in the future, you'll get a lot of young girls who look to the TV and decide that that's something that they want to do. So the young girls will follow and the you know, younger women or even older women. I mean, you look at the history of women's cricket. So many good players have retired so early or left. It's like, come on now. You know, and really good domestic stalwarts, they just get absolutely screwed over in women's cricket. So, no, uh, we need a women's IPL. Uh, As far as the more tests go, I think it's just when they think it makes money, it'll be be something that they'll do. I think they probably got lucky with this multi-format thing. I'm not sure that will always work, but it might work for a younger audience, and that's sort of important. Um, So, yeah, you know, I just think before we worry about three-test series, can we just get... You know, uh, Susie Bates has never played a test match and she's one of the greatest uh, uh, women players of all time. Ju- you know, um, I was going to say dual Olympian. She's not dual Olympian because cricket's not in the Olympics. But, you know, obviously a, um, a New Zealand basketballer, a great batter, uh, incredible captain, uh, and she hasn't played a test. And there's a lot of players out there that I just haven't played many tests. So we just need women to play more cricket from IPL all the way through test cricket. Andrew says, uh, what is your expectation for Major League Cricket in the US? Something that will fail to take off or something that has the backing to eventually become a solid mid to lower tier franchise tournament? Uh, That's a good question. Uh, Major League Cricket, its biggest problem is always going to be the fundamental issue it has is that it's with the wrong time zone for India. 
that is going to cause problems for it going forward. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But you've got Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Australian, New Zealand, England expats, and then you've got the burgeoning US, um, uh, uh, you know, um, cricket fans coming through as well. As I've said many times, I think that it'll be the next hipster sport after football just because cricket's so fucking interesting, right? Um, you know, the stories and the tw- and, and, and the quirks and, you know, all the different stuff in cricket is just so interesting. Probably in, in, in some ways a lot more interesting than football just because, um, you know, there are great, interesting Russian football teams, but, you know, other than Jonathan Wilson, no one's going to know about them. Whereas in cricket, most of the great stories are right there on the surface. So I do think there will be a bit of a boom. As far as where that franchise goes, I suppose it really depends on whether it takes off as that hipster sport or not. Um, It's a mid to low level one if you're just going on expats and a few hardcore Indian cricket fans who, sorry, hardcore American cricket fans who, you know, have had Willow over the years or have, you know, have bumbled into the sport. Uh, A lot lot of getting into it through the sort of Moneyball movement as well. uh, there's a lot of people sort of coming over to cricket already. Um, that will keep it as a mid to lower tier level. Um, if it has any sort of pickup in America, then you're looking at probably a mid-level tournament. And then obviously if it completely takes off and, you know, John Hollinger is tweeting about it and Bill Simmons is tweeting about it. We've already got John Boy obviously tweeting about it. Um, but if we get all those sorts of people, you know, up and about, um, then you're looking at a really, really interesting tournament going forward. That They're setting up Major League um, Cricket to be a major tournament. They don't want it to be, you know, certainly not mid to lower level. Um, but it might take time as well. I mean, you know, it's it, we're not – no one's expecting cricket to get to the size of baseball or basketball, even ice hockey, right? But it doesn't have to get to that level to have a lot of money in it. And I think that that's probably the where they're aiming it at the moment. Um. Johnny says he's 33. Thanks for that. <laughs> uh, in his lifetime, England only had one world-class Red Bull spinner. Realistically, do you think any changes that could be made to English cricket mean that, that they always have at least one top-quality spinner available for the test team? Or do England's climate and conditions basically make this impossible? I'm going to throw this, Johnny. I'm going to say that the thing that makes it impossible is the way that England think about cricket at the moment, which is still very much... Um, that their way is the right way. So, you know, green green pitches and proper rolled turf wickets and all these sorts of things. Um, so many players complain to me about Somerset, and I think I've I think I've done the research. Somerset Somerset doesn't have. If you look at the percentage of spin bowled at first class venues in the world, Somerset is the fifty. I think it's the fiftieth or thirty fifth most spin bowled in any venue. And it's a mile um, above uh, Old Trafford, and then there's daylight. I think after those two you've got to have pitches that spin. And I think part of this is it goes all the way back to club cricket as well. So most club wickets in in England are sort of damp green wickets, right? Not particularly set up for people to rag the ball. Even the spinners who bowl on those, it's more that, that the ball is stopping and, um, and those sorts of things that are happening with the surface or they're bowling with wet balls um, and that's not, you know, they can just roll their fingers on it and it turns. If you had more synthetic wickets, and if the first class, and if I don't know, five or six first class teams got together and went, Do you know what? Let's, this is how we're going to dominate. Like, there's nothing to stop North Ants, well, other than the weather. Um, there's nothing to stop North Ants actually going, Do you know what? Let's just buy up all of the best English spinners in counter cricket. You know, we've seen them do money ball type things with that before. I think they could do something like that. But climate's always going to be a problem. I think that's fair. Uh, Duncan Edwards says, do you think Justin Langer has done a good job? Would you renew him? Do I think he's done a good job? I th- do I think other people could have done the same job or better? Yes. Do I think that means he did a bad job? No. I don't think he really bonded with a lot of the players. I think he caused a lot of issues. I think that's his, his temperament at times. I think he went in trying to think he could boss them around like he did in domestic cricket. That didn't work. I don't always like his methods. I certainly would not want him to coach any cricket team I was playing in. Um, however, um, I also don't think he's done a bad job. Like, you know, he's kept it ticking. Um, it was, it had a great bowling lineup before, as long as he didn't ruin the bowling lineup. The only thing I would say is he used a former batting coach and under him, there was a regression of a few different batters. Now, a lot of that might have something to do with the playing, uh, with the, uh, pandemic of playing pace bowling, pace bowling pandemic. I should remember that. I've got a video coming out on that. So, uh, would I re- renew him though? I don't think he's the coach for the future. 
Um, I think it was a panic move. I think there were better options than him at the time. Um, and he's done a fine job, but uh, I, don't, I, don't think, um, I don't think I'd keep him around, no. Uh, AB says, Ireland, Namibia, Nepal, Scotland, and USA collectively have 12 players in the IPL auction. Would you bid for any among that group and why? Uh, uh, look, it's a good question. I'd have to go through, you know, the, the full list of all the um, players. Obviously, Sandeep um, Lamachana is an incredible player. George Munzee in form, I think, is an IPL player. Um, probably didn't make the runs that he needed to in the World Cup. Um, Ali Khan's probably moved down a little bit. The Namibian players, David Wieser, is probably a backup player, but a potential backup player there. I'm um, trying to think Ireland. I think, you know, if they were going to go with Paul Sterling, they kind of would have gone with Paul Sterling by now. Um, I'm assuming he's the, one of the Ireland players in anyway. Um, so, yeah, I don't see any of those players going off the top of my head. Chris says, if the ICC is seemingly disinterested in truly going the game outside the existing strongholds, it's important to note, Chris, that the ICC is not disinterested in that, but um, the boards that run the ICC. The ICC done a brilliant job. In fact, the reason that we have all those teams that I just mentioned is because of the support they've had from the ICC over the years. Um, while fighting the major boards, um, there were some great people involved. You know, uh, Bob Woolmer um, was there for a long time. Richard Doan, who I think now is with you in the USA cricket, was incredible. Richard Doan's one of the heroes of cricket, um, and uh, people should know a lot more about him. Um, but yeah, sorry, I'll go on. Um, could we expect to see one of the T20 leagues look to go outside these traditional countries by trying to make a TV or streaming deals more widely? Uh, I think... Um, the T20 leagues look to get outside those traditional countries. Well, I mean, they already are by looking for players, right? And we know that from the Yao Ming-China um, connection in the NBA that, you know, if you have a major player from a country there, that ratings generally go up. Uh, when Australia started having NBA players, the Australians started doing the same thing, same thing with Premier League football. Um, so just by having those players really helps. And then eventually you sell the rights on the back of that. Um, I, I, but, but, I mean, we've had leagues in Europe, although that one didn't work, Canada, um, we've now got USA coming up, uh, Oman. Uh, you know, there's certainly, there's certainly people that realise that the non-traditional places are decent places to start T20 leagues, um, and that could help grow cricket around the world. Uh, we're seeing, Ian says, we're seeing the wobble ball dominate test cricket, but why aren't we seeing the same in white ball cricket? Because the ball's shit, Ian. <laughs> um I mean, that's basically the reason it stops doing anything, <laughs> like really early on. The, the wobble ball probably has come a lot more prevalent in the last, what, two years because they fixed the kookaburra as well. Before that, it was thought you couldn't really use the wobble ball um, without it being a Duke's ball. Uh, it's not quite true, um, but it was very hard to perfect, I think, with the kookaburra. Uh, they fixed the kookaburra and the wobble ball is now everywhere, right? So I think that is a very fair thing that is happening. Um, white ball cricket does get bowled. Um, you could certainly see bowlers using it. But the thing is that if you've got, especially in T20 cricket, if you know you've got about three overs maximum where the ball's going to swing, are you better off to actually just bowl seam up and try and use that swing rather than the wobble ball? And I think at the moment teams are thinking that. It, also, the wobble ball can be, you know, swing can go further um, than the wobble ball. The wobble ball you know, we sometimes see it go massively, but usually it just goes little amounts. Um, and maybe if someone's clubbing the ball, you want to swing the ball further. I don't know. Now I've said that out loud. I'm not sure that's a thing. But um, but I can understand why they might not do it. But, yeah, basically it's just that the seam is not um, it, the seam is not that good and the balls get a little bit softer um, and they go apart. But, yes, technically the wobble ball does work. I saw the England women doing it um, against the Australian women. Um, I've seen people do it in the IPL. Um, so it's certainly, it's certainly becoming more of a thing here. Uh, Christopher says, thoughts on the Under-19 World Cup? I've not watched a ball of it. James says, should Will Cricket Australia revive the concept of the tropical mid-year season? Yes, I think they will. And I think one of the reasons it didn't work before is they were playing cricket in June and July in Cairns and Darwin. Townsville have a game as well? Cairns and Darwin certainly did. Uh, they were playing those games in, in June and July, which obviously is a problem because cricket fans have no... Uh, we're not used to that. So we saw the same when they played, um, the, you know, the Super Series um, or whatever it was called uh, with the World Eleven. People just didn't tune into it. However, 
if you did that same thing, but you did it as a day-night test, um, of which I, I think you get a lot more people from Cairns and Darwin turning up. You did it in the midweek, so it doesn't clash too much with football and rugby. Um, I think it's a really good idea. Um, so I do expect it to come back just because there's too much cricket being played and they're going to fit it in somehow. Thank you to everyone on Patreon. Great questions there. There is a joke in cricket that we started protecting our testicles 100 years before we put on helmets. I'm not here to give you a history lesson on the cricket box and its invention, but this is a generally true statement. So that means as cricketers, we are more focused on protecting our downstairs than our head. And yet when so many of us shave our balls, we do it with a crude implement made for trimming a beard. Well, Manscaped are here to make sure, like the cricket box did 100 years ago, that our balls are completely looked after. Manscaped have the Lawnmower 4.0, a stunning device that trims your pubes like a delicate late cut. Well, without the actual cutting, I suppose. And I have used this, so you're going to have to trust me when I say this is a shockingly good piece of kit. And maybe this is for another time in the story, but a man who has injured himself down there and had to go to hospital to get to the whole area fixed. I'm glad that there's something that feels a lot safer. Huge thanks to Manscaped for making the Lawnmower 4.0 and also for giving us a discount code. So get 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code REDINCA at manscaped.com. Come on now, 20% off, free shipping, manscaped.com, REDINCA, you get it. Thanks to the ICC regulations, you can no longer use saliva on your balls, but you can use Manscaped. All right, let's see what we got in the room. Sam, are you there? Hey, Derek. Okay, so my question has to do with the evolution captaincy from the 60s to now. And I'll tell you why. So the last couple two articles on captaincy, one was by you about Coney and the captain, et cetera. And I broadly agree with you that, you know, we don't have good Dutch captains and honestly, most of the things written about captaincy is fluff. But, and the other article I read was by Ian Chappell, where he was comparing Virat Kohli and Joe Root. I don't know if you have come across this. And he was particularly severe on Joe Root and calling him lacking Dutch feel, imagination, etc. And surprised me, and which is why I started reading. Ian Chappell comes from a time he played in like 60 to 70 years. The captains have a way bigger role and importance and decisiveness back then compared to now. Or is there something else that I'm missing regarding the role of captains that I as a fan cannot see? No, I think I think you're right. I think well, back in the old days, captains were like the team manager and everything, right? So you usually had someone who went with you to organize the events, and that was about it. Um, so, you know, uh, chairman of selectors, uh, coach, um, PR, press officer, you know, the captain was everything in those days. Um, if you had a problem in the team, you know, that was probably your first port of call. None of those things really exist anymore. Um, Dan Vittori was probably the last guy trying to keep that alive in test cricket. Um, and that was really just because New Zealand cricket was falling apart and they let him do it. It wasn't, it wasn't a good idea when they let him do it. Um, we certainly see, you know, um, uh, Mashrafi, um, in Bangladesh, uh, at times have a, you know, a, a fairly big role. Um, you know, Coley had a big say, but nothing compared to what you saw in the sixties and seventies. I think you're right. I think the game has fundamentally changed so much that it's still a very tough job and it's still a very busy job, but it's not the same kind of job that it was in the 60s and 70s. Um, I think really good captains are still involved in all of the decision-making or, you know, not decision-making so much, but the planning and the, and the thinking and all those sorts of things that Chapel was involved with. But Chapel had to make sure that, you know, his players were in form and, um, you know, at times he probably had to make sure that his players were on the bus, right? You know, things that Joe Root does not have to worry about at all. Um, uh, you know, how you rest and rotate players, like Joe Root probably gets to a tour game if he's captaining um, and um, and the analyst or the fit, maybe not even the analyst, the fitness um, consultant probably hands him a sheet and goes, can you stick to these rotations today? Um you know, a lot of those basic things that, that Chapel had to do. So, yeah, I do think the, the, the role has changed a lot. And I think a lot of where the huge talk about captaincy does come from that older position where back in those days there was certainly a lot more going on. For instance, you know, Mike really gets all this um, uh, extra credit because of, you know, the psychology of cricket captaincy and, and everything that he was involved with. Whereas now you would actually have a psychologist, right? You wouldn't, you know, it's not that Bre I, if we had a captain with Brearley's background, they wouldn't be using that. 
but that wouldn't be his job anymore, whereas that was almost part of his job when he captained, and that was still into the 80s, right? So, yeah, I think I think it has changed. I think in Chappell's case, though, he's probably he's probably the head cheerleader of the funky captaincy squad. I really do think, unless you're attacking at all times, um, in the exact way he thinks you should be attacking, he really has trouble with you as a captain. Um, and I get it. And obviously, you know, he was a very successful player, although sadly for him, his record doesn't look that good because most of his success came when he played in the Packer years, which is probably even a stronger version of Test cricket. Um, but, uh, you know, he's a very successful player um, and a very good player. But I do feel that his opinions just haven't changed in the 40 years I've been listening to them. I mean, I, I didn't start listening to them when I was two, but, you know let's say 86 I've really started listening like it's the same opinions over and over again and the game is just not even close to being similar um anymore you know you Imran Khan maybe was that last sort of really really huge figure of of uh on a team just because he could be right um and those sorts of things just don't really happen anymore other than the fluke situations like the Dan Vittori one yeah and uh one like uh, follow up. Are there any like books or articles that you've come across that sort of go into detail about this, or is it still is it just not that big a topic to explore? I know Kartikeya um, Date might have written some. I mean, he's probably written some articles on captaincy. I'm trying to think if anyone else would have. KK might have written some as well. Um, it's it's such a hard thing to write about. Um, I mean, I've written a few articles. Um, if you go back to the IPL, I think I might have written another one on Owen Morgan, uh, which is also about captaincy, which is similar to the, the Virat Kohli one, but maybe looking at it from a different angle again. But yeah, I, I think you'll find more and more younger writers will stay, steer clear of it just because it's, as you said, most of the writing about it, it's just, it's just nonsense, right? It just, it just is. I mean, most of the writing about it is like talking about body language more, more or less, right? Or or win losses, which has more to do with the other 10 players in the team than your captain. It really is such a nonsense thing. So uh, I'd, I'd be interested to see if there are more articles out there um, on it, especially maybe debunking it, its use. But Katakea, myself, I think KK might have written a piece. Maybe Monga has written a piece as well. Um, there is a few of us who just, you know. It, and it's not that we don't think a person can have a, an impact, but most of the time, well, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, oh, look how bad he wants it. Look at Virat, look at his passion. It's like, well, it doesn't matter if he's got passion if he puts the fielder in the wrong place every time, right? If Joe Root is putting the fielders in the right place more than Virat Kohli, that is fundamentally we should make him a better captain than Virat Kohli, right? And and we focus really on on the wrong things again and again. Um, and it's it's tough because that maybe there is no right things. Okay, yeah, that's good to know. And uh, are there people waiting or do I have a quick job? You know what? I've, all I've got left is he, is Keshav, and he hasn't come off mute yet. So if you want to ask another one, you can. Uh, it, it's sort of a segue from this. So do you think Chappell's views are more applicable to, say, teams that are less professional, like, say, uh, some of the associate nations where, you know, captains and certain individuals have bigger say, and even certain women's teams, if you look outside, say, India, England, Australia, all the big nations, do you think then it's more, his view is more applicable I mean, no, it's not more applicable for the West Indies or Sri Lanka, but it's probably more applicable for the Netherlands um, or, or Scotland or something. But even then, even if you say it's more applicable, how, do you, how can you tell, right? There's absolutely no doubt that the Dutch players under Peter Boren looked like they would run through a brick wall. And Peter Selah is just, He's just not that kind of guy, right? He's a cool, you know, Boren may listen to this, but Boren's, you know, maybe a nerd is the wrong way of thinking about it, but he's like a really earnest, let's, we're going to do this together sort of guy. And Selah's like a bit more chilled, a bit more relaxed. You could see him on a beach and then he fires up when he plays cricket, right? And so it's easy to say that like, oh, for Boren, they would run through a brick wall. And for Selah, it doesn't look like that. But maybe Selah is better at getting each individual player ready for a game. Maybe Selah is better at tactics. Maybe Selah is better at all those other things. Um, and I think the one difference is, and I'm trying to think of, oh, Trent Johnston maybe is, is one of the best ones. You know, you look at someone like Trent Johnston and you see what he did for Irish cricket really was teach them about professionalism and what, and what they had to put in to be, you know, top-level players. 
you can do that even if you're not a captain, of course, but it means a lot more if your leader and your captain is doing that um, and going out and, and on the field. But again, is that better than a captain who has the ability to um, spot talent and use talent better and you know manipulate the field better and all those sorts of things? It, regardless of what we say, we're, like, we're going for these kinds of tropes. So, so for instance, the best one is Brendan McCullum. So someone tweeted me the other day, said, what are you talking about? Brendan McCullum completely changed New Zealand cricket forever. Stop saying that captaincy is overrated. And I was like, well, I mean, I think that Brendan McCullum played a huge role in New Zealand cricket changing. There's absolutely no doubt about that. But Gary Stead and Mike Hessen played a massive role. New Zealand cricket as an organization coming together and going, do you know what? We're going to fix the pitches. Probably played a bigger role than either of those two did. Kane Williamson went on to be even more successful than Brendan McCullum. Having Ross Taylor there and having a player of that ability, having Tim Southey and Trent Bolt followed up by Wagner and Jameson is absolutely huge, right? And what did McCullum do? He maybe changed the way that a few of the key players were thinking about the game. But a lot of the players that they had test success with probably had less to do with McCullum realistically and had more to do with the fact that New Zealand had fixed their domestic system. They made it professional, then they fixed the pitches, you know, um, all these, uh, you know, then they, they'd had a really good A program. They had a really good coaching unification program. But from the outside, it's like, oh, look at McCullum. He's diving over the boundary again. And I've written those pieces. And there is a part of that that is true. But it's disingenuous to say that New Zealand cricket got better because Brendan McCullum suddenly started taking test cricket seriously. It's just not true, right? It's just not even close to being true. And we fall for the flashy stuff because we're humans and we're supposed to. Um, but when you look beyond it, you usually find that there's a lot more reasons and a lot more things that, uh, that happen, I think, in those particular situations. Thanks for your questions. Thank you. Keshav, you there? Hey, Jared, I'm here. Yeah, my question is regarding the broadcasting. Just in terms of, uh, you know, cricket, we understand between the overs, um, the broadcaster will put the ads and they earn mm -hmm. money. Uh, in terms of other sports, um, just I'm curious, like, how they'll earn money? Because there are no time gap as such uh, in football or in tennis. So just I'm curious how they'll earn money in terms of other sports. Tennis stuff has at the end of the second game, um, at the change of ends, they put ads up. Football has, you know, the big half an hour. And also, I, I would say because of the length of football, it probably gets a longer build-up audience and a longer um, audience watching afterwards, it's certainly than cricket. That's In cricket, it probably doesn't get that much just because the sport itself is so long, people tend to do that. Basketball or American sports basically did timeouts so that they could get around this problem. Um, I mean, that's not quite true, but more or less um, is how it's been gone. Um, uh, I don't watch golf, but I'm assuming in golf they just take a break when they need to take a break. And then they probably, they sometimes show things on replay, I think on golf, don't they? Um, say, oh, this shot was played a couple of minutes ago. Um, so yeah, so there's, there's plenty of ways um, to be able to get ads in, in all those other sports. Cricket just, the reason the one day cricket still exists is because it is such a brilliant advertising gimmick um, that you can get a hundred different ads in. People don't have enough time to go off and do anything. Um, and so it works perfectly, but uh, you know, uh, tennis and other sports don't quite have that. But they, what a lot of other sports have is the ability to have um, uh, more advertising sort of that's easier to see, if that makes sense, and that is a bit more prominent at times. But cricket is, for advertising, uh, a really, really great sport and, and always has been. And I suppose Kerry Packer was the first person to really work that out. Um, and to be fair, he didn't even know it coming in. Um, yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. I mean, even um, if you listen to SEN cricket in Australia when when they do their commentary, you know the school, you know the scoreboard's got a name, and uh, the maiden's got a name, and uh, the bowling change has got a name, and uh, it's incredible how many things you can fit into cricket because you have the time and the space. So it is better set up than other sports, but uh, you know I don't think other sports are you know particularly struggling when it comes to advertising. Um, cricket's big strength really is the length that it goes for, especially as we come into the streaming age, I think more and more. Um, it's weird because people think T the T20 is, is the strength, but from a how long you can keep people on a platform um, perspective, Test Cricket is an absolute brilliant one, and so is One Day Cricket. And that's why, as much as anything, they're still around. Cheers, mate. All right, just got a couple in the chat here. Ashish says... My question was about why wrist spinners do better outside Asia and finger spinners do in, uh, do something inside Asia. I think that's probably 
to do with the fact that inside Asia, oh, I'm trying to think if there's a specific reason. I think it's probably due with the, the speed at which a, an off spinner can bowl compared to the speed of which a leg spinner can bowl and get good revs on the ball. So you can wang the ball in with off spin and with leg spin, you have to use your whole body to come quick to be able to get any pace off the ball. So you don't really have any off spinners at the pace of Matt Parkinson, right? At, at the sort of the upper levels of international cricket. Um, and it's not that Matt Parkinson's arm speed is slow. My guess is his arm speed is about the same as an off spinner, but the off spinners have the ability to keep the pace on the ball more than leg spinners do. And, and I think that probably helps in Asia because the pitches are already spinning more. So you don't need the extra revolutions that a wrist spinner can get. But the best way to look at this from, uh, to work it out is if you look at an off cutter compared to a back of the hand slower ball, back of the hand slower balls are generally about 15, 10 to 15 K slower because the back of the hand motion slows the ball down. Um, so I, I would guess that's the difference there. Ashish. All right. Go back to the chats here. Oh, Keshav, what's your question, mate? Yeah. Hi, Jared. Hi, what's your question? Hi. Uh, so my question is, uh, since you have been a filmmaker, uh, mm-hmm. and now you are completely into cricket. So how much of that filmmaker inside you now helps you in your cricket writing and editing videos? Oh, it certainly helps in editing videos. I think being a performer professional video editor um, is a big step up um, over what other people have. I think my uh, my producer, Muku, who's probably fallen asleep, but he um, sometimes he'll say, oh, that's a really good edit you've done. Almost surprised because he forgets that I did it as a job, uh, <laughs> which might also show that I'm not quite as good as I used to be as well. But um, so I think that's a huge, huge advantage. Uh, I taught myself writing really through novels and watching films and reading screenplays. So my writing is probably a little bit more visual than more writers is. Um, uh, I probably think a little bit when I'm structuring things in my head, even if I'm not trying to do it, I probably structure things a little bit more. And if this was a movie, how would I do this? What would I show now? Um, I think that is, um, that probably plays a big part in it. Um, and also because I, you know, my the closest I've ever been to being trained as a writer was at, um, as a screenwriter. Um, and so that probably allows me to write features a lot easier than it does for other people. Um, just because I have the ability to keep all those different moving parts in my head that a lot of newspaper people who get into writing through newspapers really struggle with that because, you know, they know how to keep a tight 500 and, you know, I know how to, how narrative flows and, you know, how to cut between scenes and all those sorts of things. So I think it plays a part. It's certainly an advantage. Uh, I think I'm the only cricket writer making cricket writery videos. Uh, obviously, you've got, you know, Barra and Mel and the great cricketer boys and Colo and Jeff, but they're all just sort of doing well, more of this kind of video. Um, so I think having those other skills is a huge advantage to me um, and being able to picture things beforehand, um, allows me to put things together, um, in a better way. But, you know, essentially what, what you want to do in the industry is you want to, no matter what, what job you end up in, you want to use all your different strengths and make something that works for you, whether it be a job or a product or a, um, a video or whatever. And, um, I probably lucked into this YouTube thing on the back of that, um, being able to do that. Yeah. And I, I, I've noticed that, uh, in your narration as well, when you narrate something, you know, like I'm a musician. So in music, how we have, uh, uh, different sorts of dynamics. So I've seen that variation in dynamics when you narrate something and, and sometimes even cinematic pauses. So I was just wondering if, if this is the filmmaker inside you that affects it. I think the thing is that. I suppose the filmmaker part of me was more uh, documentaries. So I probably between the age of 22 and 30, you know, watched 5, 10, 15,000 documentaries. Um, I love the documentaries. I don't get as much time to watch them um, as I used to, but I, I love that format. That was always the... Uh, I always wanted to write fiction, but nonfiction always sort of dragged me back in as it has with cricket writing as well. Um, so I understood the narration side of it, especially in the sort of documentaries that I liked where they were probably slightly more personality-based, you know, uh, Nick Broomfield, Louis Theroux, you know, Mike Moore. Those are the sort of ones I saw early on because those were the ones that were quite 
uh, that were played in cinemas. And so early on, that probably was a big part of it. Uh, you know, over the years, then obviously I've gone to you know many other different kinds of, of documentary styles since then. But I think that one was probably where I learned to narrate without really knowing what I was doing. But also at a certain point, um, well, and I should also point out that uh, you know I did some acting in my teenage years as well, and so I do understand how to deliver lines and pause and all those sorts of things um, for effect. And so not, not only was I doing plays, but my mum was um, an actress and I would quite often run lines with her. So, you know, I learned things from her as well. So I think that probably all sort of plays a little thing. And it comes back to what we're talking about before of, you know, the ability to um, use the things that you have um, available to you. So I don't think that there's that many, I don't think there's that many people who could do sort of an open-ended Q&A like I do um, in cricket writing um, where you can almost ask, you know, someone asked about player sex life last week and, um, you know, you're, you know, you're now asking about my cinematic back- background, right? So again, that's some, another skill that I have. So what you're trying to do in any, and this is, this is the same for a cricketer as it is for a cricket writer, same for a musician, you know, same for someone who works in an office. You're really trying to use you know, a bunch of your pre-existing skills, um, to, pa- to, you know, um, to be as good as possible, you know, to, to do the work as well as you can. And I think in this particular case that, yeah, uh, that must be something else that I'd picked up. Um, a lot of it I, we had to train ourselves on. In fact, the one I had to tr- I had no problem with the YouTube videos. Almost straight away I got them and I did quite well with them. Um, pace is a bit of a problem for me because um, I tend to pick up pace as I talk naturally, um, as my head whirls. Uh, but the double century we had all sorts of problems with. I think the first season I probably did the first few episodes two or three times because if you talk really quickly on a podcast, um, it doesn't come out well. So I had to almost devise another voice. So I almost have like in my head a Jared Kimber double century voice, which is separate to my normal speaking voice and obviously separate to how I do the YouTube. So you have to be conscious of those sorts of things. Um, Although, you, you know, once you get it right, then uh, you never watch any of your videos again or your podcasts again because you hate them all. Uh, but thanks for that. Thank you. Parv, you there? Uh, or just while we wait for Parv to come up, I see here that Barman has said, need to improve the domestic circuit for women cricket first before thinking about a franchise league for them. So why didn't they do that five years ago, four years ago, three years ago, two years ago? When, it's not a good enough excuse to say that anymore. And I can tell you that partly because the women's, um, domestic cricket league in England is not particularly good <laughs> below the hundred, right? So it, it's a nonsensical ar- argument to say that um, that you need to improve women's domestic cricket because they can, they could do it like that, right? They have billions of dollars in the bank and they have millions of women and girls who want to be involved in cricket. It is a very, very easy fix for Indian cricket. There are other countries where it's a bit tougher, um, and it's going to take some time. But realistically, I think they could make money off it, which, which is silly. I think they could improve the quality of women's cricket so much in such a short period of time without any problems at all. Um, and all I could see at the moment is a lack of will and basic old misogynist tropes. Like this is sort of a perfect one, Barman. I'm not having a go at you perfectly, but this whole idea of, oh, they need to fix, you know, they have to, they have to fix women, women's cricket structure. A, how much do you know about women's cricket structure? How much time have you spent researching this? My guess is you haven't done much time. You don't know how many women play. You don't know how many women are registered across India. You don't know what the quality is. You also don't know what the quality of the pitches are and all these sorts of things, right? There's a lot of things that are said about women's cricket that are said by men who don't know anything about women's cricket right? In this particular case, I think it's something that can certainly be fixed um, and can be fixed fairly um, easily. While Parv's writing down his question or her question, I think it's him. I think I've talked to him before. If anyone wants to um, ask any more questions, as I said, I'm working on the pace playing pandemic piece at the moment, which is um, way bigger. I was doing it. I was trying to do something on the wobble ball scene. And I thought, oh, if I do the wobble ball, I really have to talk about the pace playing pandemic, especially as I've mention it in almost every second video about test cricket over the last year and a half. But I didn't really have anything at that particular time that I wanted to do. And then I was like, oh, I'll just do a quick video on that. And then I'll follow up with a really long video on the wobble ball. Wow. Spoiler alert, the pace playing pandemic. I never got it wrong when I did the recording. Uh, video is uh, 
not particularly sure. In fact, I'm I'm really proud of it. There's lots of different moving parts to it, but um, hopefully that will be up. What's today? Thursday. So it should be up tomorrow, um, depending on how quick I can finish this. Uh, while we're waiting for Pav, uh, Kesha is back. Yeah, I think it's my lucky day. Uh, so I I have a more cricket related question. Uh, you know, Deepi mm-hmm. Adav has come back into the Indian squad without having played much in the last few months. So whenever a player is, you know, making a comeback out of exile, do you think uh, since Rohit Sharma is a new captain, so sometimes is it because of a bit of favoritism, the captain likes a certain player, or do you think a captain probably thinks that okay, I know what was lacking in him, I can work on him and uh, get him back uh, on his uh, uh, own, and you know he can be a match winner again. So what what did you think Rohit Sharma would have seen in Kuldeep to bring him back without having any cricket in the last few months? Don't think Rohit would have had anything to do with it. Well, very little to do with it would be my guess. I mean, that's what you have selectors and coaches for, really. I would assume that Kuldeep is back because of a matchup. I would assume that they're, uh, perhaps I, I, I've got a vague memory of Shamsi doing very well against the West Indians and they've brought back a left arm wrist spinner. I don't think that's really a coincidence if we're, if we're being honest. I would assume that those two things are, you know, entirely related to each other. And I think it's probably more to do with a matchup than anything else. Um, I couldn't imagine that he would have done much off the field to have done it. So I would think it's probably matchup related. And I don't know. There isn't actually that much matchup data on um, left arm spinners bowling to um, anyone because there aren't, you know, what is it, 0.7% or 1% of all deliveries in T20 cricket from a left arm wrist spinner. But they might just be going, wow, look, we can give him a go here. Let's have have a look. We know that um, Shamsi did well, and I'm trying to remember that correctly off the top of my head, but I think that's right. But And let's just give him a go. But I wouldn't have thought that, like, you know, Rohit's like, we must get him back because uh, I would say it's much more to do match-up selections. Jared, Jared, what did you make of this uh, fact that, you know, in 2017, after Champions Trophy, India went to risk spinners very consciously that they need wickets in uh, middle overs, right? And then they had a lot of success for a couple of years. But then we saw last year Ashwin and uh, Jadeja and even Varun Chakravarti, they were in the T20 World Cup. So they went back to finger spin and now again Ashwin is out there going back to wrist spin. So where do you see this going? I think they just thought their wrist spinners weren't good enough so they went back to their finger spinners. And is it that's now they're again done with the finger spinners and going back to wrist spin? How many wrist spinners are in the squad? Uh, there is Chahal, there is Kuldeep and then oh, of Chah- course... The- I mean Chahal had a really good IPL and probably is there and thereabouts. And um, and Cool Deep, as I said, I don't think they've gone to him because he's a wrist spinner. I think they've gone to him specifically because he's a left-arm wrist spinner and they're playing the West Indies, is my guess. If they'd picked him for any other team, I, I would think maybe they had a conversation about wrist spin, um, but I don't think that is the case uh, here. But uh, thanks so much for your questions, mate. All right. Parv, he's asked the question in here. He says, is it harder for players like Pope or Chris Lynn to develop technique against spin? It's something that's ignored by bats as there also seems to be not much talk about batters' technique versus spin when compared to the amount of discussion there is about pace versus spin. Well, the first reason that there's more discussion about pace versus spin than, uh, sorry, pace, I probably read your question there, wrong. You're saying there's more discussion about techniques versus pace than there is spin. I think there's more variations in the way that you can play pace because there is more lengths and even lines really that um that pace bowlers bowl compared to spin bowlers so i think that's probably a big part of that so let's have a look ollie poke chris lynn uh is it harder for players like poke? Yeah, i think it's hard for any player to develop against something they're not naturally good at and then also if you happen to be from a region where you know you don't have a lot of good spinners available to you then i think that makes it really hard the, the really interesting thing um Mike Hussey was a brilliant player of offspin, even in the period where offspinners were completely do- dominating left-handers. Mike Hussey played uh, uh, a year or maybe two years with Graham Swan. And I always wonder, is that when his play against spin sort of went to another level? Um, because he you know, had a world-class spinner that no one even knew was a world-class spinner back in those days, but bowling to him, talking to him, um, you know, work, you know, working on things together... I always wondered if if that was a huge help for someone like Mike Hussey. 
I'm not sure that's quite going to be the, you know, Ollie Pope and, um, although to be fair, in Ollie Pope's case, he's had Gareth Batty. Who else has he had? Probably didn't get Murali Kartik, did he? Um, Ashwin. <laughs> I've had some pretty fair spinners um, for Ollie Pope to face. Um, but, yeah, I do think as a as an natural thing, if you're not naturally good at it and you're not in an area where it is there's a lot of it around, I think you do struggle to learn and develop and get better at these things. Also, in, in Chris Lynn's case, I think Chris Lynn, I don't want to say accidentally because I think he did it partly on purpose, but I think he set himself up to be someone who could baseball the ball away. So almost, you know, I mean, the best place to bowl to Chris Lynn is sort of at his hip, on the inside of his hip, because there's no way he can do a proper sort of baseball swing at, the, at that ball. Um, and that doesn't really work against spin in the same way. But he might just, you know, I've never been particularly good at it. I don't remember him ever ever seeing him, even as a young player, and thinking he was a decent player of spin. So it could be something as as sim- similar as that. Um, uh, but, yeah, it's um, uh, it's, it's a very good question, Pav. What a shame you couldn't ask it verbally. Sit off. How you doing, mate? Yeah, I'm doing good. Thanks. Uh, my question is regarding the evolution of spin. So you, you know, the pastering pandemic, and you have talked about how the fast bowlers have gotten stronger and taller and have more pace in general now. So have the uh, spinners in general, but specifically the finger spinners also evolved because finger spinners are now bowling much faster. Even like Ashwin, I saw, if you see Ashwin from 2015, 2016, he was bowling much slower. Now he's faster. And uh, I'm just wondering if it's because, uh, and you know, throughout the history of the game, like Shane Bourne and uh, Shane Bourne used to bowl at a much slower pace, but that's that was also due to the fact that he could spin at mile. Uh, but still, the spinners have. Uh, but now I think about it. Now I think that players need to have uh, finger spinners, especially need to have an extra bit of uh, X factor to them, like height in Ashwin's case, or uh, an abnormal amount of reps, or uh, incredible consistency, or something like that. So, what what are your thoughts on that? I think finger spinners have always needed those things, right? I mean, that you know, that's what allows them to do what they do, whether it be the amount of revs, the amount of drift, the amount of drop, the ability to hide their ball that does something slightly different, the way they use the crease. All those things have always been important. Um, you know, if you happen to be tall, I mean, there's always been a clamor for taller spinners, especially left-arm finger spinners, less so off spinners, although it does seem to be now that, you know, with um, Washington and Ashwin coming through that perhaps we're seeing maybe not a generation of taller off spinners, but I think we're seeing the difference uh, of what an off spinner can do. It's important to note, though, that like you talk about Warren, Abdul Qadir wasn't particularly slow. Um, I wouldn't have said Mushtaq Ahmed was particularly slow. I'd have to go back and have a look at the speed um, for him. Shahid Afridi wasn't slow. Anil Kumble wasn't slow. Derek Underwood wasn't slow. Jim Laker wasn't slow. Chuck Fleetwood-Smith wasn't slow. Bill O'Reilly wasn't slow. Sid Barnes was fast enough that sometimes they called him a bowler and uh, sorry, sometimes they called him a fast bowler and sometimes they called him a spinner. I think if anything, something, maybe it was when the pitches went from covered to uncovered, sorry, from uncovered to covered, bowling quick didn't make as much sense. So we lost maybe a generation of spinners who bowled a little bit quicker, but now because of Asia, uh, becoming more and more prevalent, it probably makes a little bit more sense to bowl quick. Also, we now have studies, and teams have those studies, uh, that there's an optimum pace for to bowl spin at, which is, I think, uh, uh, well, between 95 and 105, or uh, it might be more specific than that. Um, but, you know, Sayed Ajmal and Rashid Khan's speed, uh, if you will. So we know now that you should, if possible, if you can still get the ball to drift, drop, put revs on it, and get it to turn off the straight and can do that at a good pace. That is probably better than bowling it a little bit slower. So, yeah, I think, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, one of the things I find really weird is that, you know, finger spinners still don't bowl the knuckleball and most finger spinners have very long fingers. Um, that's part of the reason they're finger spinners and the knuckleball needs longer fingers. And we've seen Sun on Orion have success with that. So I do believe that the, off spinner, uh, off spinners and finger spinners in general. There's a lot of um, stuff that they can do, but yeah, physically it makes sense for any bowler to be incredibly tall or incredibly short, 
to have a weird action, all those sorts of things, they all play a part in being successful in test cricket. So um, I certainly, you know, whether it be a finger spinner or a wrist spinner, I think those things are really important. Like if you could get a six foot seven wrist spinner, and I suppose who would be the tallest, I suppose Kumble, Cameron Wright probably could have been someone like that if he'd taken his bowling a bit more seriously um, and got his, got, his, got his action right. But if you could be a very tall wrist spinner, that would be a really handy thing to do because generally we don't have massively tall wrist spinners come through. Um, and when we do, players often complain about them because they're difficult. So, um, yeah, I think there's plenty of things that can be done. Thanks for your question. Size just asked one in the chat. If you can ask it on the, on the, on the audio, it works better. But... <laughs> Uh, wouldn't cricket benefit if boards and broadcasters forgo copyright on footage on YouTube? Wouldn't it help the game grow faster in non-cricket playing nations? I don't know if you've ever read any of my pieces. I think I've read, written this about four times. I'm sorry for being honest. Yes, it's hugely stupid. At the moment, they've all got this thing that they're all going to get rich off YouTube rights. It's just, they're not. And also, there's a way of doing it as well. Just don't get people to put it up willy-nilly, make sure that anything they put up, they add to it. There has to be a critique there. Um, there has to be editorial content with it. You can't just put up highlights packages. You can't just rip off the same footage from someone else and, and not add to it. Basketball is so ahead of the game here. And basketball grows in such a better way than cricket. And it just doesn't need to. Cricket's a more internationally thought of game than basketball is which is the nba and a bunch of international teams occasionally playing and yet we're so far behind the nba look a couple of years ago i can't remember when it was but i, I went on a big twitter tirade about this again and um the ecb reached out and they said oh in a couple of days our head of i don't know marketing or social blah, something was going to get in touch they, they thought my ideas are really good the ecb never got in touch I know some of my comments were moved to Cricket Australia, but then it, then it eventually reaches the people who are actually working on the rights, you know, on the highlights and the clips and all those sorts of things. And they obviously say no, because that would ruin what we're doing. I don't think it would, because I still look at highlights packages on the NBA.com app um, and sometimes on the MLB app, when, you know, when, if I'm looking for something specific. But what basketball writers and what basketball YouTube creators have been able to do for that game is incredible. And, you know, I thought all this before I had a YouTube account. In fact, I was talking about this probably 11, 12 years ago because it was obvious that this was going to be the next thing. So, yeah, I find it all very frustrating. And, yes, they should do it. Visionary. Not as visionary as I was hoping. Yeah. What are your thoughts about uh, the England and West Indies England series? England West Indies? Yeah, I thought it was. Uh, you're talking about the T21 that just finished. You're not talking about the test one to come. Yeah, the T21, right? Yeah, I thought it was quite interesting because you had West Indies trying to work out what their new lineup was going forward. And you had England trying to work out basically what what their 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 best play, players are. They kind of know their top seven or eight, don't they, or top six or seven. Um, and they were trying to work that out. So I felt from that um, standpoint, it was quite interesting. Also, I don't usually cover bilateral limited overs series because I don't want to. Um, and um, in this particular case, uh, Talksport got me to commentate on it. So I did get into it a little bit more. So I don't know if it was more interesting than usual or just I just so often only watch one or two games um, uh, and I don't. But I really like the – I thought it was quite interesting. You know, the West Indies are trying to work out whether still whether they should go all in on all these seam bowling all-rounders, like guys like – I'm going to say Shafane Rutherford, but I don't mean him, do I? I mean the guy that I met once, Romario Shepard. Romario Shepard, Odian Smith, Dominic Drake. Someone said Vaz, but Drake's then. Uh, if any old people are listening, I'll understand why. Jason Holder, Karen Pollard, you know, maybe even Andre Russell. Um, they've got, they've just got this incredible line of these, uh, Chemo Paul. You know, they just have this incredible line of all those sorts of guys. So I think what they're really trying to work out now is can they kind of cheat a little bit, play all those people and then bat to number, uh, you know, 10 or 11 um, and just go balls to the wall. It's really fascinating. And England are just trying all these players that, you know, a lot of us have seen in franchise cricket. You know, a lot of us are in the 100. We're now seeing, you know, what what they can do on, on, the, on the main stage. So um, I thought from that point of view, it was a surprisingly entertaining series. Um, also, there's something about it being five T20s, um, which I really liked. You know, the, <coughs> I don't get into the series as much when it's like three T20s and three one-dayers, but it's like, okay, we've got a week of serious T20 cricket here. 
two teams trying to work some things out. Let's go. So um, I thought it was quite good. Thanks, Visionary. Thank you so much again, everyone on Spotify Green Room. That was good fun. Again, really, really interesting questions. Thanks to Manscaped. You can get 20% off on shaving your testicles by putting in the code REDINCA, all one word, free worldwide shipping, and get that bald deodorant that Muku likes so much as well. There's also Bodyline T-shirts. So this is my Curly Ambrose one. Somehow, I, like I've ended up in my life owning two Curly Ambrose T-shirts at the same time. And I'm not going to lie, it's one of the greatest things I've ever done. So big thanks to them. Also, just huge thanks to everyone to buy me a coffee, but more specifically, Patreon. This podcast only exists because of the support we get on Patreon. Remember, if you want to ask your questions first, you get the first class status and that gives you access to my Substack and to the Patreon. And you can ask questions for this here podcast going forward. You can hear this podcast on the Red Inca podcast and on YouTube, or you can just subscribe to us on, on Spotify Green Room and pop in when you can. Thanks to everyone. Goodbye.